Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the mini break. Your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, February 28th. On today's show, I want to take a step back for a moment from this week's tour-level action and take a look at some of the biggest questions that have emerged from the first two months of the 2024 WTA and ATP seasons. I could think of no better person to help me do that than the man who joins me on today's podcast. He's the man, the myth, the legend, the man with all the mathematical answers. It's founder of Tennis Abstract, Jeff Sackman, joining me on today's podcast to look at those trends, those questions that have emerged through the first two months of play. Of course, how do we determine those questions? How do we determine those trends? Well, by diving deep into the statistics offered by Jeff's website, tennisabstract.com. Of course, Jeff has also recently launched his heavy topspin blog, my favorite piece of writing we have in tennis media right now. And on today's show, we dive into the, some of the questions he has examined on that blog. We dive into some of the questions I have after spending hours looking at all of the numbers that have emerged from this season. And then, of course, we go on a few tangents, because how could we not whenever we have Jeff Sackman joining us here on this podcast? Another tremendous episode that I am certain all of you listeners will enjoy. Now, I do just want to give you a quick disclaimer. The audio at the ending of this podcast gets a little bit choppy. I apologize for that fact. We'll try to clean that up moving forward. It happens from time to time. Nothing is unsolvable other than perhaps audio technology, which just every so often likes to throw a wrench at us here at CR. Nevertheless, again, it primarily happens at the end and certainly didn't diminish the podcast to the point where we weren't going to have an episode for you all. So again, fantastic way to start today's mini break podcast shows. Let's kick things off with a first two-month review with our dear friend Jeff Sackman. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out, or things like this is because of the support we get from all of you listeners and, of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. Also, just a friendly reminder, tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, ESPN Plus, we have number 14 Baylor hosting the number one Ohio State men that match and many more coming up as we dive headfirst into our coverage of the 2024 college tennis season we will have broadcasts every friday sunday moving forward through this college tennis season on espn plus covering the acc sec and big 12 conferences that will feature both men's and women's college tennis again some of the best we have in the country competing each and every week Uh, of course we will also have big 10 coverage for you all every sunday Day on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. So be on the lookout for more broadcasts on the horizon, our first of which I suppose this Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern time, Baylor hosting number one Ohio State. Of course, you don't care about those plugs. You want to hear a conversation about what we've learned through the first two months of this 2024 season. So without further ado, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with the one and only Jeff Sackman. 
Joining us on the podcast once again today is a man who must now be described as a returning champion here on this show. Of course, you all know his work as we cite it each and every day here on this podcast. If you are not turning to Tennis Abstract for all your stats, all your fun facts, all of the best analysis in tennis, you're just not doing tennis fandom right. And thankfully, joining us on the show is the founder of Tennis Abstract and, of course, co-founder of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. You can't forget that fact. It's our dear friend, Jeff Sackman, joining us once again. Jeff, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing today? I come for the superlatives. I stay for, I I don't really know why I stay, but I appreciate (laughs) all the kind words as always. Well, I try to mix things up on you every time, but again, Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, it's our bond. It's still, we've unlocked the safe. Like, we found the Arena Sabalenka code together, and, you know, we're essentially Nicolas Cage and whoever the supplemental actor was in the National Treasure Hunt. You can be the Nick Cage role because I do think I'm the guy who comes up to you and tells you, you know what? I watched National Treasure last night. Spoiler alert, folks. It just, it happened to pop on, so I happened to stay tuned in. And there was the scene where where his understudy tells Nick Cage and the leading female actor whose name I'm blanking on at the time about daylight savings time and why they actually still have time left to go check out the clock and find the hidden glasses. And that's me to you. Like every so often I throw you a, hey, like, don't you remember? It was after World War One. daylight savings time came. So we actually have more time to figure out this stat. And that I actually think is an apropos beginning to where I want to start today's show because, Jeff Sackman, you have obviously taken the tennis world by storm, I'll say it, with your new blog, the Heavy Topspin blog. I think it's the best writing we have in tennis right now. And I won't lie, I always appreciate when some sort of tweet of mine is incorporated into your piece. It's just the positive affirmation we deserve in this relationship that we have now developed over the years. But my pitch to you for your next topic, and I'm curious if you've written something like this in the past, is the number 35 player in the world better now than she was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Because I think this is a topic that I've been thinking about more and more to start the season. And again, our point here today we'll get to eventually is addressing some of those big takeaways from the first two months. One of mine is just parity. And it's honestly both the men's and women's game. I just feel like at any given moment, you know, on the men's side, I'd point to a player like Matteo Arenaldi. Like, I just feel like he is better than... I'm going to say his Philip Kohlschreiber contemporary from a decade ago. And that might be Kohlschreiber slander. I apologize to those of you out there offended by that. But is that a topic you've explored in the past? Is that something you would consider for the blog? Well, it's something that I've definitely thought about a lot. I've touched on it from time to time. And I can tell you, it's one of those questions that the moment you touch it, it like spawns into 10 more questions and 100 more questions and 1,000 more questions. Because the, the first the first thing you have to ask is exactly what you mean by better. So do you mean like, are are they a better tennis player? Is Arnaldi a better tennis player than number 35, 10 or 20 years ago? And to that, like, it's tough to quantify. It's not, it's, it's complicated to quantify this, but I think the answer is an obvious yes. Like, whether we're talking about racket technology or a bigger number of potential tennis players in the world, like it's an, it's an obvious yes. There's just tennis players are better. 
Um, whether you mean is 35 closer to number one or number five or number 10, that's actually an easier question. And I don't know that offhand. I'm not sure there's a huge difference, but that would be interesting to look at. I mean, it's it, it, whenever I can find a way into a question like that, I'll absolutely write about it. Um, what I found, like I've been, I've been looking at this exact topic ever since I was writing about baseball before I even thought of myself as a tennis analyst. And it's really, really hard. And a lot, a lot of people have attacked like comparing generations, comparing level of parity over generations. It, any, any approach you take has problems that might make your answer just flat out wrong. <laughs> so it's, it's somewhere where you have to tread carefully, which makes it, it kind of makes it a good like bar stool conversation, like an actual bar stool, not the bar stool sports people. Um, definitely not that, but it, I, I'm not sure what the resolution is. If I would love to have one. I call it barbershop conversation just so there's no confusion because if the tennis barbershop exists, this is what we would be debating. You're absolutely right. Technology, athleticism, all these things, science, you hope with advancements in it that players now are just better than their contemporaries from eras before. Go listen to some of them speak about the average player now and how things have changed. You're right. You can't just do a straight points comparison. Does the number 35 player now have more points than the 35th player did then? I thought ELO ratings might get us closer, and I'm sure to some extent they do, but I, you're right, like quantifying that gap between maybe not 1 and 35, but man, like 5 and 35. Like on any given day, what's the difference between a Maria Sakari and a Linda Noskova? Those are just two names off the top of the head right now. We just saw Taylor Fritz lose to Matteo Arinaldi, and did Fritz play his best? No. But that's the name I just keep turning to. I'm fascinated by the 23-year-old Italian, if you can't tell, because he's just really good. I don't know if he's great at anything, but he is really good. And that just feels like that's going to be the standard to be a top 40 player moving forward. And if that's our standard moving forward, like, oh my goodness. I just think we are, again, same thing on the women's side. If it's like the hots and colds of Diana Yastremska constitutes the 27th best player in the world, not like the 14th, no, 27th right now. There are 26 who are more consistent and can flash that upside as well. We're in a really good place as a tennis fan. So I'm just curious if it's something you've been thinking about. Well, Arnaldi is fascinating. I mean, I did, the thing that really piques my interest about him is he committed to tennis really late, didn't he? I think he was a, he was a serious swimmer into his teens, which is, I mean, pretty good practice for tennis athleticism, but still not direct. And he's come this far despite being only fully committed for really just a few years. So compared to other 23-year-olds, I think he has a lot more upside that we haven't seen yet if he, I mean, if he keeps working. I mean, there's some limits to his size, but I, I mean, I'm definitely more optimistic about him than I would be to another 23-year-old who is posting the same results. Yeah. No, I think him... Flavio Caboli is another one, the 21-year-old Italian, where I don't know what he's great at, but there is a place for that sort of athlete in the top 50 moving forward. Like, he's figuring out the tennis stuff. Even to some extent, like, we've had this discussion before, I'd say that about Ben Shelton, where it's like, yeah, he's figured out the serve, but the rest of the stuff is still a work in progress. And much like an Arnaldi, this is a guy who didn't really commit to tennis until he was 14, 15 years old full time. And you can kind of see that learning process as he goes. I mean, on the women's side, again, pick your young name out of a hat. My favorite is to point to players like Anisimova 
and Radakanu, who are still like 22 years old, and they have fallen out of the conversation of best prospects. And it's like, one's a slam champion. The other might be the more talented in Amanda Nisimova, who's made a slam semifinal as well, the power tennis she's playing. I've said this before on this show. She's had a long-standing invite to weekends at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Like She's always welcome to come hang out because we think someday she might be a property owner here. I just think the depth is there. And I ju- again, you are the man of metrics. Maybe that, that's how I'm going to introduce you next time. Man of metrics, Jeff Sackman. If you can't quantify it, no one can. And so I guess that it really does come down to how do you define better? Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and and that's what's, there's just so many different questions you can ask, like com- comparing going year to year to year back through history, then there is a way to do that. It's complicated. It's not perfect, but you'll find that not only is the number 35 player better than they were 10 years ago, the number five player is better than they were 10 years ago. The number one player is better than they were 10 years ago with a few exceptions. Like if we're in a weak era, then that might not quite be true, but over, over time, that's true. Then we can answer the question of, what was the what was the chances that number thirty five beats number one in nineteen ninety four? We we could look that up. Um, but then again, is that the, is that the question we're asking? Because if if you're comparing the weak errors with the strong errors, then number one isn't a constant. Are you going to take number five as a constant? Number ten as a constant? I've played around with stuff like that, and nothing's really satisfying. And even if you ask people that direct question, like what's your instinct on, like what's the what's the rank that you're willing to just say? number this is about the same from year to year, like number five, number 10, number 20. I've had people say number 100 and they won't go below 100. Um, and that's, that's what you need to answer before you start answering the question that you pose. So it's, it's tricky. Yeah. No, again, that's why I wanted to pose it to you here and put it on your mind. Cause if you can't solve it, Nicholas Cage, no one can. Um, and so find the treasure. And obviously, when you do, hopefully, we will see it written about in heavy top spin. While we're on the blog, uh, let's stick there for another opening tangent. But it's in the theme of things we've learned from the first two months. And I alluded to this to Jeff, or Jeff alluded to this before we started the show. We kind of had an outline. I've thrown it out the window here in the first 15 minutes. That's- you, just gave, you just gave us a new topic. I didn't even know we had a topic. Yeah, well, that's what I, I haven't mean. learned anything in the first two months. I don't <laughs> well, know why I'm here for this. That's that's that was my theme. I should have said it's not why you're here specifically, but it's my theme of the week, and it's some of the questions that you know again are lingering on my mind. I should say maybe what we haven't learned, but what we need to learn moving forward. And one of my favorite pieces you wrote that is in this theme is is Sebi Corda making progress? Which again, a fantastic heavy topspin piece. Everyone can go read on tennisabstract.com today. And, you know, again, the central premise of the theme is is Sebi Corda who I mean it's pretty straightforward. Is he making progress? And you look for Corda who has now lingered in that twenty to thirty-five range in the rankings for about two and a half years now. You know, that's despite a bunch of injuries keeping him out for about six months total over that stretch of time. It feels like every time he gets started, something hits him off track, whether it's an injury or, again, a a run of poor form. just feels like we've yet to see that six-week run from Sebi Korda. And I'm curious because looking at his results, surface value, he actually did end his season pretty darn strongly. I think there was a stretch where he made quarterfinals or further in four or five events. Obviously, in Asia, had some big results at higher level events as well. Why was this a topic that 
came to your mind, and I'm curious what your assessment was. Again, if you don't mind summarizing the piece for us. Yeah, the, the idea was, I mean, the, the, the news during Marseille, I think, when he won his first round match in Marseille, was that it was his 100th tour-level win. And, you know, sometimes these guys who you'll you'll just forget about them for a little while. And if somebody's outside of the top 20, they're not in finals every week. Like, as much as you personally might be keeping tabs on everyone in the top 500, men and women every week, I can't quite do that. And I, I do lose track of some of these guys. And I saw that piece of news and it's like, I knew he was there. I know he still has promise. I know he's still young, but I mean, it's the whole topic popped back into my head. Like there was a time we probably had this conversation a couple of years ago. I felt like he was by far the most promising American since that time. Ben Sheldon has arrived. I think he's kind of dominated that conversation since Taylor Fritz has taken more steps forward than some people, myself included expected. So I don't think anybody's looking at Sebi Corda and saying, this is the American hope. I mean, people aren't looking at him saying, oh, he's a big disappointment, but he's no longer the guy. So the question is like, okay, his ranking is not much better than it was a couple of years ago. We've been waiting for this breakthrough. This never happened. Yes, he's been injured. We have to account for that. Fine. But is where's he at? Like, what, what's, the, what's the verdict on these last two years? Or what I'm always trying to ask is what's holding somebody back? Like, is it something that can be fixable? Is it something inherent? Like like my Ben Shelton piece was basically just saying, like, it's really, really hard for someone to get from his level of returnability to a level of returnability that's going to make him a champion. And that's just, that's a different sort of thing than someone who just makes some tactical mistakes or can show up their forehand or something. So I'm always trying to answer that question. Like, is, is what they lack something they can fix? What is it? Are there players who fixed it? What will it take? And yeah, for Corda, he's making progress, but there's a long way to go. Like his, his serve, the serve itself, the, the, the first shot is so good. Like it's not Hercotch, but it's, it's almost in that neighborhood. But then what happens after that, where he should be just cleaning up plus ones, or I don't, do we call a fifth shot a plus two? I don't know, but he should be cleaning up those rallies. He, and he doesn't, he misses a ton of those shots. He misses way more than almost anybody else. And He's, he's basically just giving those points away. So he's taking what should be a dominant top 10 type serve and turning it into, I mean, being number 34 in the world or whatever he is right now. Um, he's gotten a lot better. That was one thing I found that was surprising. Even, even post, it was a big run, I think, two years ago in Australia. Um, maybe it was in last year. I don't know. But since then, he's actually shored up some of that weakness and he's, he's not making as many errors on the plus one and the, the, the shot after that. Uh, but there's still a way to go. There's still a lot more errors than comparable players. So the, I mean, my, my question was, is he making progress? Yes. He's making progress. Is there a lot of progress to go? Yeah. There's a lot of room left to grow for Sebi Corda. Well, what was so fascinating, it was last year's Australia and I was in the camp of, I still think he is the most promising prospect in American men's tennis. And he's still just young enough to qualify on that list for one more season. And the reason is the ceiling I saw. I thought he was a top five player in the world last January. And I know that's one month, but let's just remember what he did that month. Match point on Djokovic in the Adelaide final. He loses in three, but his level there was sensational. Beats Medvedev and Hercots on his way to that Australian Open quarterfinal. What did Medvedev go on to do in the month of February? Didn't lose a hard court match that next month. Again, dare I say, Korda was the impetus that got Medvedev back going. And it just felt like finally... It's all falling into place. 
this is the month that's the catalyst for the rest of the year. Then injuries kept him out for a big chunk of the start of last season. And, you know, even through the results he earned last year, you know, semifinal Shanghai to end the year, I think he made final or semifinals in places like Winston-Salem and maybe it was Astana as well. I remember there's a really good match with Hamad Medvedevic. Yeah, I think he made that final in Astana, lost to Manorino there. Like, there were some good results, certainly. But, you know, again, what was so promising about Korda when he was young is you mentioned it and you write about it so well. The serve was good. The foundation was there. But it was clear he was nowhere where he needed to be in terms of plus one accuracy or second shot accuracy, third shot putaways. Again, imposing his will in those service games the way someone his size is capable of doing. He wasn't doing that when he was younger. Last year, he did that to the best of his ability. Career high, 84.3% hold percentage, first serve win percentage, 74.7%. Again, that's a top 15 number amongst top 50 players. All these things had started to improve, but then the hold percentage, uh, break percentage fell off a cliff. Like last year, 20.7%. The year before that, he was 26.5%. He's still searching. Like, as you kind of alluded to, you can tell Sebi Korda is still out there with all these tools at his disposal. But for whatever reason, all the pieces haven't quite fallen together yet for him. Like, sometimes it's serving in plus one. Other times it's the movement at that size to be able to be that fluid. You're not supposed to be when you can when you have that sort of height to you. And he is his strength. The technique on the backhand is up there with anyone. You're right, like... The forehand gets a little leaky at times, and when the forehand gets leaky, everything else kind of falls apart with it, and so I guess my question is, are you still holding out hope that there's a potential big ELO jump there? Have things steadied to the point where you don't know if that big jump is available? Can we, like, should th- we expect things to continue to trend up, I suppose, for Sebi Corda? I think the biggest question is always his health, not just his health sure. now, but how his health affected the numbers that we've seen. And that's like both the biggest weakness in the type of analysis I do and the the, the biggest reason for optimism when you do the kind of analysis I do. Because I, I know I've, I say this like I'm a broken record on this subject that players don't tend to change. If I find some metric that tells you how what a, what a player is, it's a real uphill battle to change it. Like if you've got a guy with a leaky forehand, odds are they're going to have a leaky forehand the day they die. Uh, Maybe it'll get a little better, but it's not going to go from leaky to above average. So that's what you're up against. The exception is like, if he's, if the last year or two of data that I'm basing this on, it's all because of wrist problems and the wrist is going to magically be a hundred percent, then Whoa. Okay. I mean, a, a wrist problem is a pretty good excuse for a bunch of forehand errors. Uh, so if you can make those go away with rehab or just with time and and the injury healing itself, then bam. I mean, the potential unleashed. If I'm just not sure, and that that's something that I mean, without X-rays and actual medical knowledge, I can't I can't tell you anything about that. Uh, but, but I mean, that, that's the reason to really believe if you think he's, he's continuing to heal and he's, he's not going to have those same problems going forward. If he does, if, if, if he doesn't have that kind of magical boost to the, the error rate from getting a better wrist, then I'm not super optimistic. I think he, I mean, I think he's a top 20 player. I don't have much doubt in that, but sustaining a spot in the top 10 is going to take more. 
I'm really fascinated by his matchup tomorrow in the quarters against Andre Rublev in Doha uh, or Dubai, wherever they're playing this week. And yeah, it's funny looking back at the article. Korda did win his 100th match uh, in Marseille. It was right after Davidovich Fokina won his 100th as well. And so now I do remember sending out the tweet comparing the two as such. I see it's 19th quarterfinal in the career for Sebi Korda. Given the injuries, like that's a pretty solid number, uh, again, for a guy who I think we all have seen the upside. The question is, can he sustain it? I'll go back to what I've said. We've yet to see the – we've seen maybe a four-week run. Never the eight-week run, never the three-month stretch that is often the catalyst that gets a player to a new career high ranking, and then they stay there uh, for quite some time. And, you know, again, maybe a win here uh, in the Middle East can get Korda going into the Sunshine Swing, two events where I do think he should have success throughout the course of his career. You want to read more about the error rates, all these different things? Again, make sure you go check out the Heavy Top Spin blog on Jeff's website, tennisabstract.com, my favorite piece we have in all of tennis media right now, speaking of do we know who they are, Jeff, this was a topic I did prepare you for to start today's podcast. It's a topic I have talked about over the course of the past week and a half here a couple of times, but something I wanted to pick someone else's brain about as well. I actually joke with our friend Gil Gross that every time he comes on the pod, we have two things we have to do. We have to spend five minutes talking about Andre Rublev's destiny of going one and two at ATP Tour Finals for the rest of his career, which by the way, it's a pretty good spot to be in in life. The other thing we always do is spend at least five minutes on Stefano Tsitsipas. So welcome to the We're Going to Talk About Tsitsipas Club here, Jeff. I just don't know what to make for of Stefano Tsitsipas anymore because talk about knowing who someone is from a statistical standpoint, from an eye test standpoint. Just as a tennis fan, we all know Stefano Tsitsipas, his serve, his forehand, Dare I say one of the three, maybe two most reliable plus one combinations we have regardless of surface on the ATP Tour. He hits his spots that well. He hits his forehand with that much authority, can hit all the different spots, follows it up uh, to the net so effectively. I mean, he's a guy who's constantly no worse than top 10 and more often than not top five in hold percentage to end a season. And yet, Jeff Sackman, for the first time I can remember, He's fallen outside the top 10 in your overall ATP ELO ratings. Right now, he's sitting in that number 11 spot. Obviously, he recently fell outside of the top 10 of the ATP rankings as well, currently sitting at the number 12 spot. The question I've been pondering is, when is the last time Stefano Tsitsipas earned a signature victory? Not a good victory, a signature victory. I know he made the Australian Open final last year. You know, beats Sinner, round of 16. That one's aged well. Semifinals beats Hatchinov. Certainly a good win. I wouldn't argue it's a signature victory, though. Like, when's the last time we saw Stefano Tsitsipas get one of those? Maybe when he made the 2021 French Open final? Like, do you have to go back that far? I don't want to say has I mean, the Tsitsipas window closed, but where are you with Stefanos? Well, I have a theory. This is okay. very, like very half-baked but I think you you'll, you might have some thoughts on this. And it actually ties into Corda as well. So first, first data point, the, something I wrote a couple of weeks ago, um, nominally it was about Hugo Humbert, but the, the topic ended up being surface sensitivity. So obviously there are players who are better on hard and clay and vice versa and so on. But what I tried to get into was 
identifying the players who were better on faster, hard than slower, hard, faster clay than slower clay and so on. And the beautiful thing about this article is I, I thought of this topic because Humbert, um, he won Marseille and then lost first round in Rotterdam. I think it was whatever it was, it was the title followed by a first round loss to Roussevori and Rotterdam is known as a slower indoor hard. Um, Marseille is known as a faster indoor hard court. Wouldn't it be like nice and appropriate if it turned out that Umber was actually one of the more speed sensitive players, which would make sense sure. given his game style. And that's, the, I mean, it's, this has never happened to me in all the metrics I've generated all these years where I thought, wouldn't it be great if I came up with this stat and he popped <laughs> out at the top of the list? Boom. There he is at the top of the list with Talon, <laughs> with Talon Greek Spore, of course. Uh, so it was, it was beautiful, but I bring it up because at the other end of this list, trying to figure out the, pl- the players who benefit the most from a slower surface, uh, the bottom of that list was Stefano Tsitsipas. I think it was Tsitsipas and Lorenzo Musetti. Yep. The two of them, along with Nadal and Davidovich Fokina. Sure. So you don't think of Tsitsipas as, I mean, obviously he's not like a clay core grinder, but he's had some solid successes on clay courts sure. um, and he does better on slower surfaces because of that one-handed backhand that's not the most flexible shot in the world let's say so he's got a weakness tying this back to Corda, like i promised Corda has a clear weakness on the ground here's my theory so i know that analytics have made inroads in the game a lot of coaches are looking more at numbers a lot of the top players have an analytics person around, not me. I don't know why not, but they don't. That's fine. I'm not. Uh, I'm available I'm, as well. We'd be a good. I'm parent. not mad. Yeah, exactly. You can you can get two for the price of one. Yeah. Uh, and you get all this too. This is the best part. Uh, so, knowing this all is out there, I won't say that serving or returning has gotten better, but I'm willing to say that if. If, if coaches and assistants are, are looking at the numbers more closely, I think they're probably serving smarter. That's the one matchup where you can really exploit analytics and say, you know, here's a simple thing you, uh, Hubert Hercotch, can do in this matchup against Sitsipas. Just if you normally serve 65% to the backhand, let's make it 85 to the backhand. Just like hammer that backhand all day long. It's not like a, a, a high-tech nuclear physics level insight, but you've got the numbers to say, however much you think you should hammer that Sitsipas backhand or that quarter forehand, do it more. Do it until you cannot stand to do it anymore. And if you look at Sitsipas's numbers over the last few years, his serve is as good as ever. I mean, he's just cleaning up, holding close to nine out of 10 games every year. His return has gone in the toilet. And Maybe he's less focused. He's had some injuries to deal with. That could be part of it too. Maybe he's, maybe he peaked early and he's fading. All these are possibilities, but it's consistent with the idea that players are just going all in. Now what you have is, is servers who are going all in. Sitsipas is cleaning up on the serve. He's been winning nine out of 10 service games are pretty close for years now. That's not going downhill, but the return has gone on the toilet and that could be, there's a lot of possible reasons for that. But one possible reason is that servers have figured out how to beat him and it's working. Uh, and that's, I don't know how you reverse that. If you're Stefano Sitsipas, he's not going to, he's not going to learn a two handed backhand at this stage of the game. He can only improve the backhand he has so much. Maybe it's, it's not something that's fixable, but it would explain what's happened. That's exactly 
what you have to just turn to is that the book is just so thoroughly out on how to play Stefano Tsitsipas. And look, like things have on the margin certainly continued to improve for Tsitsipas each and every season. You know, but but the dramatic shift in hard court to clay court break percentage success, it's just so striking each and every year as well. You go back to 2021, his most successful of the season's break. And just for the record, over the last 52 weeks, average break percentage amongst top 50 players, 22%. On hard courts, 21%. On clay courts, 26.2%. So obviously, you know, everyone's going to break serve a little bit better on clay courts. It's a slower surface. You should have more success. The dramatic swings for Tsitsipas, though, are what's most notable. 2021, his break percentage on hard courts, very good. 23.8%. His break percentage on clay courts, top 15 good, 29.1%. 2022, you still see even more dramatic now as the playbook starts to get out a little bit more on him. His hard, uh, his break percentage on clay courts, still very, very good, 28.8%. Again, that's why he's an elite clay court players because he's still top five in hold percentage, but the backhand is just significantly less of a liability. Hard court break percentage, 18.2% in that 2022 season. That's no bueno. And then you look at last year, again, really good on the clay courts. He's breaking serve 27.8% of the time. You combine that with the fact that he was holding serve 84.8% of the time, that is clearly a top 10 player on clay. Hold percentage on hard, uh, break percentage on hard courts, 17.9%. So this, again, this gap between the two continues to grow. His break percentage continues to decline, which is indicative of what you're talking about, is people just kind of know where to serve to against him, how to play against him. What is the adjustment? Like, he he moves pretty well. He's gotten, obviously, he's one of the stronger, you know, again, with bigger weapons than just about anyone. You know exactly what you're going to get out of Stefano Tsitsipas, both positives and negatives. If you are not prepared, if you don't have the strength, to out to withstand his serve, his plus one forehand, he's going to overwhelm you. If you have a weapon though that can disrupt his rhythm, play with pace in the backhand, like he's going to have trouble against you. I just like is it is the maximization of his serve, his plus one enough? To keep him in that top 10 conversation. Like, you, what was, I always forget, the number's like 35% of the return points won, right? Or 30% of return points won. He's at 33. It's, 30, it's 36 or 37. Okay, so thir- I like that. 36 or 37. You look for him right now. Stefano Tsitsipas return percentage over his last 52 weeks, uh, or return points won, excuse me, 34.8%. That's just beneath. It's the first time it's dipped below there, Jeff. How concerned should we be? Yeah. Well, I think it just means this is the player he is now. Unless it, unless sure. he can bounce, unless he has an injury he's bouncing back from again, like I said about Porta. Unless it's that, then then it just means he's a he's. We know what sort of player he is now. And again, players players can get worse. I said before, players don't change. Players can always get worse. Uh, but they generally don't get better in, in especially on, on margins like this. So I mean, you, that 36%, 37% number is the minimum for being like really great top, top three player, like top five player. You can crack the top five. If you have a really great tie break year in your Milos Ronich, mm-hmm. but 
Otherwise, you've got to have a 36, 37% return points one. But you can crack the top 10. I mean, that's, Isner was in the top 10. Query was in the top 10, wasn't he? You can you can be a one-dimensional player and, and hang in the top 10. So you just have to maximize your one dimension. And Sitsipas, I mean, that dimension isn't going anywhere. As you point out, he's still a very capable on both sides of the ball on clay. It seems like he should be able to put together a, like a tour finals qualifying season every year from that. So I'm not really sure what's what's gone wrong. Like the, the numbers, I think, would even support him being a little higher than he is in the rankings or even the ELO right now. So I'm not I'm not sure what the problem is. But even if I'm being optimistic to that extent, I'm saying I'm optimistic to get him back to number seven. I'm not optimistic to get him back to number four, probably at this point ever. Yeah. You want to guess his career return points one percentage? Mm, 36. It's exactly 36. That's what it's at now. Now, he's declined under that number the last two seasons for the first time since 2019, which was really his breakout campaign stretch. You can't afford to dip under it, no matter how good that hold percentage is. Otherwise, essentially, he's labeling himself as a modern-day John Isner, and that's a really good player, but that's you know he's been a tier above that, clearly, over the course of the last half decade. And again, like... The Alcaraz matchup was just such an issue for him last year. And you just, again, I don't know structurally how he goes about about solving that. I think Sinner can attack him in the exact same ways. I think, obviously, again, Rude, Rublev, all these different guys, they continue to play well. I don't know, man. Stefano Tsitsipas is in a tough spot. Like, when is the last time he had a signature run, a signature win? He beat Zverev. He beat Hatchinov on the way to the Paris semifinals. But, like, is that a signature run? Not for a guy who's made a couple of slam finals. And I think that's the level he holds himself to. I just, I really wonder if he's going to be able to get back to it. Well, and that's what happens when you become when you become a surf bot. Like I'm not quite ready to call him a surf bot, but that means that anybody on tour, like even I don't not even on tour, anybody who qualifies for our main draw somewhere, they can beat you seven six seven six, and your run is over. And end of story. That's what makes it so remarkable what Hercotch is doing right now with all of his tie breaks. Like I mean, he's we don't hold him to quite the same standard that we dream of for Sitsipas, but. I mean, her catch is winning a lot of tie breaks. Uh, it's probably an unsustainable level of tie breaks, but that, that's what he has to do if he's going to put together a run. And that's what Sitsabas has to do. It's really, really hard. I mean, if you're not peak slash lucky Milos Ronich or maybe Pete Sampras, it's not going to work. I mean, you just have to wait. In Sitsabas' case, you have to wait until clay season comes around and peak at the right time, which is feels like such a weird thing to say, you know, Sitsipas needs to save his save his bullets from Monte Carlo, but that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, no, again, the problem is just structurally, even at, on those clay courts, some of the matchups, like the guys who are at the top of the game now, Sin or Alcaraz, have the weapons still even on clay to exploit that. I mean, again, it was just the Alcaraz, how overwhelmingly Alcaraz beat him last year. You just felt like, uh uh-oh, is he losing the clay court surface as well as the go-to thing where there are just now guys who are even better than that? He's a guy to watch. Again, uh, there's been some draw chaos in Acapulco, so he'll have some opportunities this week. He needs to get things going. Uh, Certainly someone I'll be watching closely throughout this 2024 season. Other than that, Jeff, I got some ELO rating and rankings noise I want to talk about with you before I let you go. Which one do you want? Uh, Let me give you a stat first because you have mentioned this before that 
we can talk about all these players. We can talk about all these different storylines. In reality, it's Iga Swiatek's world, and we're just living in it. Do you realize over the last 52 weeks, she's number one in hold percentage and number one in break percentage as well? I know you wrote the piece about Yannick Sinner being top three in both categories, and shout out to him. He still is that as well. But she's number one in both. It's just like, do we need to play the tennis anymore? Like, do we really have to? I know she lost in the Middle East run to, to you know, again, Kalinskaya. And that's why I think Kalinskaya right now is like five in the yearly ELO ratings or something crazy like that. But she's number one in both categories. I've never seen that before. I hesitate to say we'll see it in the next half decade. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I certainly don't know who you'd, who you'd see it from unless she stays there. Uh, even more remarkable to me is that the gaps at the top of that table, like normally hold and, I mean, any tennis stat, but hold and break numbers, they're pretty, pretty closely packed. And looking at the top 50, average is 70%. You got a whole bunch of people at 71, 72, 73. And then number six on that list is Kvitova at 74. And then above 74, you've got, Caroline Garcia and Madison Keys, a bit above 77. Then Rybakina at 79, Sabalenka at 80, Shriantek at 81. It's just, I mean, they're, they're on a totally different planet. And then, of course, like you say, Iga somehow combining that with, with world-class return games as well. So, I mean, I, yeah, it, I'm glad they're still playing the tennis, but I agree. I'm not entirely sure why. Yeah, the break percentage has dipped under 50%, so she's slacking. Like, there's room for you <laughs> to pick things up. Um, but it's at, like, 49.8. Um, so, yeah, still really good there. And then, again, over 80% hold percentage is the magic number in the women's game. That's primetime Serena. That's Naomi Osaka. That was the impetus for Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. I think we talked about that literally as the origin story is I'm looking for a stat, a group of players who can hold over 80% of the time. And it's like, here's the elite group that can do it. Iga, I didn't think we'd ever have to make room for her in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, but I guess she can just have properties everywhere with the level she's playing. The only player right now top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Uh, right now, there are four players top 15 in both. And by the way, I love that there's the 51 through 100 tab now. A shout out to you because I can compare the average hold percentage of the top 50 player and then from there, break percentage, quantify it, use it for the non-top 50 players as well. Anyways, top 15 club right now, Sabalenka, Pagula, and then Mira Andriva is the last one, Jeff. Uh, it, it feels like it feels like the the metrics are all in on her uh, and her upside. Like they they think she is that good right now. Yeah, the test is just whether she can do it on every surface. If she can do it when the level of competition gets, that's really the biggest thing. It's like she hasn't, aside from the big the big run or two. Like she she's mostly racked it up in early with a lot of early round wins. So I mean, no question, she's been great. But it's not a ton of massive matches. There's not many matches against the best. Definitely not. I'm not quite that bullish on Mira yet. But I mean, the the indications are certainly in the right direction. Yeah, right now, by the way, I think there's something like 37 or 38 players active on tour whose peak ELOs are over 2,000. It's a strong era on the WTA tour is what I'm trying to say. I mean, again, like some of them are a little later in their career, but still. I was going to say, it's a, you can read that as a strong era. I think it's a strong era for marketing purposes. Sure. I'm not sure like whatever Wozniacki or Kerber is doing right now 
makes it a strong era. I mean, I, I don't, I don't really disagree, but yeah. there's, there's, there's a lot of those between 2000 and 2100. Yeah. I'm looking, at some, looking at. I'm looking at some of the names. Jeannie Bouchard makes an appearance. Shout out Sarah Arani. I mean, Sarah Arani's still <laughs> over 2000 in our hearts. Um, but Lisicki. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's it, Vic Meyer. I like this group, the over 2000 <laughs> club. This is a good, this is a cool crew. Um, so I'm down to hang with them a little bit longer. Um, but yeah, again, it just speaks to, you know, she's number one right now. And I guess, you know, looking at the more regular, I suppose, rankings as, as looking at the ELO ratings right now, Anna Kalinskaya is at number nine. How noisy is that? Like, how much is that just related to the fact that she's 24 and six since the end of October? I mean, in one way, it's it's probably an overreaction. But for players who've been around for as long as she has, I don't know how many how many matches she has in the system. Elo considers everything ITF 50 and above, so including tour qualies. There's a ton of matches that Elo is considering, and before this run, it had her considerably lower. So. I mean, I, normally if somebody goes on a run like this, like she came through qualifying, I think, so she, she's on this in, in crazy winning streak. Normally, Elo does overshoot a little bit because it's kind of saying there's this com- there's a component of how good they are and a component of what we know. So if somebody's undefeated, we don't really know how much better they could be. Like if they kept playing, would they have won 13 in a row? I mean, maybe, probably not, but it's possible. So there's that, that element of overshooting, but at the same time, you have this huge ballast of – probably hundreds of matches for Collins guys saying that she's really like not even a top 50 player. So for her to overcome that with this run tells me it's not much of an overshot. It's not an overshot the same way it would be if like Lyndon Noskova um, won the same set of matches and she rocketed into the top 10. So what it's really saying is an ego win is freaking huge. Like she's more than a hundred points above anybody else in the ELO. Um, I mean, she's the gap between her and number 10 is 300 points, which is huge. It was even bigger before she lost that match. Um, so that means that Callis guy got a ton of points for that match. And I don't really dispute the fact that she should have them, whether that moves her up to number nine or number five or number 16. Um, the other factors just like, who are you putting above her? Like the, the pack behind her is Von Drosheva, Krachikova, Danielle Collins is still up there. Azarenka, Kazakina, like they're all more consistent over a longer period of time. But if they were to play in like the the fourth round of Indian Wells or the quarterfinal of Indian Wells, who on that list do you favor over Callens Guy? I'm not. I wouldn't heavily favor Callens Guy in any of those matches, but I'm not sure I'd make her the underdog in any of those matches either. I couldn't agree with you more. Like I, I don't think it's that noisy. I think that's about where she belongs right now. I got to see her in Midland, and again, moves well. There's good depth. She's just good at everything. Like I don't know where the greatness is, but really good at everything, and that pays dividends. The over 2,000 active club right now in ELO, the only rankings that matter, Sviantek, Sablanka, Goff, Rabakina, Pagula, and Chinwen. I would swap Pagula and Ostapenko, who's seven on the list and very close to the 2,000 club. I think that's an accurate representation who the best players in the world are right now. Now, it's not that far off from the rankings. You know, again, Jabur probably a little bit high right now at eight, but I really like that someone like Layla Fernandez is at 16. If you've been watching, that feels more around the level she's playing. But let's play a fun game for you. 
for all the listeners at home of is this person ranked higher in the ELO ratings than McCartney Kessler? You ready to play this game at home, Jeff? <laughs> I was. I actually haven't haven't looked how high she was. And I did see she won the. It was at the Puerto Vallarta tournament last yeah, week. Yeah, she won the one twenty five k. So I ask you, Diana Yastremska, McCartney Kessler, who's got the higher ELO? <laughs> well, it's it's Kessler, isn't it? It is Kessler who's a little bit higher. Again, let's keep playing this game. Uh, I'm trying to think. It's got to be a good one. Taylor Townsend or McCartney Kessler? Well, that's definitely Kessler. It is indeed McCartney Kessler. Katie Bolter or McCartney Kessler? Ah, oh, that's a that's a good. Well, I mean, I had this page open, so it's not much of a guessing game to play. <laughs> Uh, but no, I, I remember being surprised that Bolter climbed quite as high as she did. I, her name came up when, um, she's playing uh, really good uh, ball. Well, when her, is she even in the top 100 of the official rankings? Is she's she now waiting? top 50. So she, she cracked the top, top 50 for the, yeah, which is, she oh, should, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. She, she was late to crack it in the top 100. So when yes. I was looking at arena Rodianova, um, it was it Bolter was on the list of the oldest players to crack the top 100. I mean, she's way younger than Rodinova, of course, but I mean, that shows how rare it is for someone that old to break in. That Bolter at a much younger age is is on near the top of the list. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, Bolter is peaking. Bolter 46, McCartney Kessler, former Florida standout player, number 50 in the ELO ratings. I love that. Just again, it's near and dear to my heart. And then look. We could play a similar game on the men's side here as well. And I guess on the men's side, let's talk Jakob Menschik, the 24th-ranked uh, player by ELO. Of course, the first man born in 2005 to crack the top 100 of the ATP rankings. I know you've been intrigued by the young Czech player's rise, Jeff. What are your th- – you know, again, chal- he wins a challenger – I think to start the year, qualifies in Australia, made third round of U.S. Open last year as well. How noisy is that number 24? That one feels a little bit noisier. What I was talking about with Kalinskaya is is she's, like I said, she's tons of ballast in that ELO rating. Like the amount that ELO adjusts your score from a win or a loss depends in part on how much data it already has. So... Mencic, if if he had won that tournament, if he'd gotten a big win over Kachanov, then like he would have gotten more points by beating Kachanov than somebody like Greek Sport would have, because the system has so much less information on Mencic. Um, so the, it is noisier. Twenty four, where he's at right now, it seems high-ish, but at the same time, like I mean, again, the same the same thought experiment. He's above Jordan Thompson, Sebi Korda. Seba Baez, Manorino, like maybe you'd favor some of those guys against him in a head-to-head. I'm not sure who or by how much. Uh, my biggest question, I, I did, the only match I've watched for a while of his was the final in Doha against Kachanov. And the thing that I noticed throughout the first set, I mean, it, it ended in a tiebreak, 14-12 in the tiebreak, so it couldn't be any closer by the numbers. And mentions is super impressive in how deep he puts the ball, even from a defensive position. And of course, there's a serve. But what I noticed was whenever they got into a rally, Kashanov seemed to be dominating the rallies. Even the ones he didn't win, even when they went 10 or 12 strokes, he seemed to be pushing Menchik around. And Kashanov can do that, sure, but he shouldn't be doing that all the time. It just felt like the check was on the defensive constantly. And 
that makes me think he's still pretty one-dimensional and maybe that, I mean, the serve is good enough that he can be pretty one-dimensional right now. And there's still a lot of room to rise in the rankings, maybe not in the ELO from where he is right now, but in the rankings for sure. Uh, but it's something to watch. I think it's, it's easy to see him just pummel the baseline with ground strokes and be impressed and say, this guy's the limit. I didn't see that translate into actually taking control of the rallies, which is what really matters. I think it was a strategy choice by Hatchinov in particular to try and get Menchik stretched because Menchik had played such physical matches against Murray and Rublev and all these different players the rounds before that. You're absolutely right. Like Menchik was forced to play defense in a way maybe he hadn't been in early rounds. That said, I didn't hate the 18-year-old's defense. I liked his ability to move around the court at that size with the weapons he does have and is able to enforce uh, when he's playing his best. I guess what's so fascinating is why he's risen so high to 24 when a guy like Arthur Cazzo, the 21-year-old, has had a comparable start to his year, got wins over what, Runa and I'm blanking on who the other one was, Greek Spore in Australia. You know, he has risen in the ELO ratings, no doubt about that, and currently Cazzo sitting at number 67. Why wasn't his rise, like I think he's a top 50 player right now, why wouldn't that be reflected in ELO? Uh, it might be in part because he has more men. There is a difference between beating Rublev as he did and beating Runa. I mean, Runa is several rungs down the ELO ladder. So I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to dig in more closely. But uh, but I think that the Rublev win is a is a big part of why Menchich is as high as he is right now. That would explain it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And, you know, again... Looking at the yearly ELO is always fun as well because right now you look at just 2021, uh, 2024, 2021. 2024 specific results. Arthur Cazot is currently sitting at 19 overall. Menchik sitting at 12 overall right behind Novak Djokovic. I like that. Like, again, I don't hate these the, <laughs> that as a reflection of what 2024 has played out to be so far, and I just think Menchik has to be on the lists moving forward. I think Fonseca has to be as well, and I'm curious before I let you go, did did you get bored in the past 22 hours since I sent you the text <laughs> of, hey, watch these Fonseca highlights, and I'm curious if you did what you thought. Yeah, I, I, I have seen some. I mean, there's – what what was the official account calling like the forehand heard around the world or something like that? <laughs> yeah. I, for, I forget what they they tagged it as. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a weapon. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I did narratives, and those narratives tend to fizzle out as soon as the golden swing is over. Like, I mean, I I, I love digging into. I wrote about Luciano Dar, Dardari a couple weeks ago, and like he's a great story. And like anytime Baez wins a title, he's a great story. I mean, there's just it, it's a great way to highlight players who are good at stuff that isn't rewarded by the rest of the by the rest of the circuit. And I don't think Fonseca is, is the type of player who's only ever going to succeed on the golden swing. That would be a silly thing to say about someone his age right now. But um, but I hesitate to draw too many conclusions from a guy who cracks the top 400 for the first time by winning a couple <laughs> matches in Brazil. All that's, I'm saying, that's, that's my devil's advocate. It's fair, but watch him hit backhands and tell me it's not Yannick Sinner-esque. Like how he extends through it, how he follows through, how he drives the ball through the court, the way he captivated the Rio crowd as well. I'm just in on Fonseca. Guy is really good. And again, these are 
yearly specific rating. So I want to be clear. Only 2024 is factored. But let's play a game at look at the ATP yearly ELO ratings at 2024 to end today's show because, God, are there some good ones. First of all, Jordan Thompson at six. He did just beat Rude Zverev back-to-back. So don't hate it. Don't hate it is all I'm saying, even though he lost round one this week to Alex Kovacevic. But we'll move that to the side. I mentioned Menchik at 12, Kazo at 19, Leandro Rady, talented 22-year-old from Switzerland. He's at 20 right now. How about 25-year-old Val Vashro? It's the best start in tennis no one's talking about. I think he's now 19-1 and overall on the season. He's 23rd in the yearly ELO ratings. My favorite, though, and this is just because it's been a pet theory of mine. After he got that win for Finland over the U.S. in Davis Cup, last week's challenger champion, Otto Vertanen, at number 32. I'm just saying, he's got real weapons. Like, is he the 32nd best player in the world right now? No. Did he look like the 32nd best player in the world at times last week? Kind of. Like, this is why I love your Lilo rating, Jeff. It's a it's a blessing and a gift you've given the tennis universe thoughts on the noise from this but if it's the kansas city royals or the detroit tigers or the whoever's bad in baseball these days like it's your team is tied in first place at least until the end of that first game and every year there's like last i think last year it was the pirates that were maybe it was two years ago but they had a great run that kept them in the it kept them in the pennant race for, for a month or two um every year has that and tennis by having the rolling system and, and your reward is oh you jump from 24 to 17, that person is number two opportunity to get squandered. I know when the, there are times in the past where the tourists have emphasized the race more and it didn't work. I mean, I'm not a marketing person, obviously, but they know better than I do. But it's it's super fun to look at this stuff. It's super fun to look at the race at this point. Well, that, I, again, you really should put in bold bullet points like it because there is the explanation of the yearly ELO at the top of the yearly ELO race. That'd be so funny. She's like, do not take seriously. Um, and then the disclaimer under of why you shouldn't take seriously. And you can just point them to that clip um, because, yeah, like. That noise is half the fun. I agree. The points race right now has never been more entertaining. You're telling me if the tur- or, you know we were in Turin or Guadalajara or any of these places now, Kalinskaya and Paulini making appearances wouldn't put a smile on your face. Like, come on now. That's your snapshot after the first two months. Yeah. Well, it, 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 makes, it makes these tournaments so much more important. Like, Baseball fans care about games in May as in terms of their impact on the standings. Like nobody cares about whether Count Sky or Paoli wins a final in October if it's a 250 and they're fighting out for a spot in the top 40. But if right now, you know, one of them could crack the top five in the race and that mattered, then it seems like such a such a huge potential win. 100%. And guess what? It's their spot to lose now. They're the front runners. So, you know, yeah. again, you get, you get to enjoy that for at least the first two months until we enter this sunshine swing. All that said, you know, we always get to enjoy whenever we have you here, Jeff Sackman. And of course, I know I speak for tennis fans everywhere when I say you make all of our lives better. Like, sincerely, we appreciate all the time the effort you put into Tennis Abstract to the Heavy Top Spin blog because without it, we would be lost as tennis fans. Like, what would I do without hold percentages, break percentages, memorizing these things? I would have no game at the bar, Jeff. I'd have nothing to talk about. There's <laughs> nothing that gets people going like, wait, you can rattle off the four women's players right now who are top 15 in hold and break percentage? I'm like, please, come on now. 
What bar is this? Uh, it's it's the, with the tennis barber shop. It's right next to it. I don't know if you've been okay. there yet. Um, no, they, I haven't been there. They, yeah, they got a lot of bar stools there. Uh, so that's <laughs> where we can have our next conversation when hopefully someday this happens in person. But anything you want to plug? Anything you want to bring to our listeners' attention uh, that you have been working on of late? No, I. You do a sterling <laughs> job of bringing all of my work to everyone's attention, and I could not improve upon that. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I'm your chief marketing officer. You didn't know you appointed me to the title, but it's one I take very seriously. It's the least I can do uh, with you joining us as frequently as you do. So, Jeff Sackman, always a pleasure to have the chance to chat with you, my friend. Be safe, be healthy, and hopefully we'll have you back on the pod soon. Absolutely. Likewise, Alex. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with the always fantastic Jeff Sackman. A thank you to him, not just for joining us on the podcast today, but sincerely the time, the effort he puts in to providing the resource that Tennis Abstract is to all of us who want to cover the tennis world closely, who want to follow the tennis world closely. That would be impossible without Tennis Abstract. So I tell this to him all the time, but just worth reiterating here at the end, a thank you to him. And you know, to any of you listeners who hear this, tweet at him at Tennis Abstract, thanking him for his work as well, because sincerely, he does it for free, and he doesn't hear enough how valuable his work is. Uh, of course, this is one of many podcasts we've had for you of late here at Cracked Rackets, whether it's over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed, Great Shot podcast feed, or our YouTube channel. Uh, we got plenty of content covering every level of the tennis world. So if you're not already, make sure you like, rate, subscribe, review, share with your friends. A shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A thank you as well to the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Also, final reminder, 7 p.m. Eastern time here on Wednesday, number four. Baylor hosting number one Ohio State. We also have expanded coverage Friday, Sunday of the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 conferences on ESPN+. So if you're looking to get your tennis fix or you're curious, why are we so invested in the college tennis universe? Come find out. Come check out our broadcast. We got so many over the course of the next few months, many of them available on ESPN+, the others available on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. With all that set, though, for the fantastic Jeff Sackman, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. See you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. 